This reading is taken from Colossians 2, verses 6 to 23, and you'll find that on your Bibles on page 1183. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, and as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of, of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the, of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and the authority. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you, you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They have puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you have died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though, as though you have still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do you not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Morning, everyone. Hope... Oh, that's nice, isn't it? It feels like I'm in school. Morning, Mr. Hanbury. It's good to be here. My name's Dave. If I haven't met you, and as Scott always says, if I have met you, my name is still Dave. It is good to be here this morning. What's the cuteness factor level on beautiful little Lily in there? I mean, she's so gorgeous. Welcome to our family. I mean, you're already here, but just one word of advice. Don't get her anywhere near my wife, please, okay? We've got three kids. That's enough. I'm just scared of the cute factor there doing any lasting damage. Awesome. Well, looking forward to speaking this morning, looking forward to preaching God's word to us this morning. I must admit, during this week, I've been greatly encouraged and challenged um, preparing this message. 
some maybe not so easy things to hear, but in the end, a beautiful encouragement. So I'm going to pray that that would be true for us this morning. Would you join with me? Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now as your children. We want to be fed by you, by your word. So I just want to thank you for using a broken man to speak your truth this morning. Lord, I ask that you would, that your word would accomplish what you want it to do today and that I'd get out of the way and that we would just see the glory and beauty of Christ. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you've seen, can we flick it over? It's not working? Connection's not working? That's all right. That's okay, I just based my talk on that. No, I'm kidding, I didn't. Um, we'll see how we go. You try and fix it up if you can, don't worry about it. I've just got a picture there of a great movie I've seen. It's called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Has anyone seen that? Yeah, it's a couple. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It was an old school, school movie. It's been remade um, into a new movie, and it's, uh, it's, been, it's directed and starring um, with a guy called Ben Stiller. Now, this guy, Walter Mitty, he's an interesting character. Right, he, uh, he, he leads kind of a simple, kind of boring life until one particular day. Right, this one particular day, how are we going? It doesn't matter. This one particular day, um, he, now what he does for a living, he works in a magazine. Okay, he works in a photo um, department developing photos sent in by this crazy wild photographer played by the character Sean Penn. And uh, what he does is he sends photos in and Walter sort of publishes them, puts them on the cover. Now, this one particular day, they find out that the magazine's going under. It's a digital age and they're going to be, you know, it's the last issue of the printed magazine. So this crazy photographer played by Sean Penn sends a bunch of these photos in to, to Walter to develop. He says, I've got all these great photos, but there's this one particular photo that is the money shot. That's going to be the cover. They call it number 25. That's the photo. Now, unfortunately, Walter can't find it. So he desperately tries to get in touch with um, Sean Penn, the guy playing um, that role, but he can't because he's old school. He's got no phone and he sort of doesn't have a home. He travels all around the world looking for the perfect shot, right, for the perfect photo. So this is kind of where the, the movie gets momentum. Walter does these crazy things trying to find this photo, trying to find this photographer. So he goes to Greenland and to Iceland. He eventually finds this photographer perched on top of a mountain in the Himalayas. He finally gets there trekking. He's got ice and snow in his beard and he's trekking. He finally finds him. He is, I forget his name, character played by Sean Penn. What are you, where is this photo? I've been looking for it everywhere. You sent it to me. You said it was the money shot. Where is it? And he can't, looks at Walter kind of crazily and says, Walter, it's been with you the whole time. Now, if we look back, we remember that um, he gave Walter as a present a wallet, and in the wallet was uh, this particular photo, right? So he actually had it sitting on it in his bottom the whole time. He says, it's been with you the whole time, and you didn't know it. So Walter went halfway around the world looking for something that was already in his possession that was on him. Now, I, I was actually researching this theme this week, and I found out that this is a genre, right? It's called the It Was With You All Along genre. And heaps of li literature and movies, all that kind of stuff, have it like Wizard of Oz, you know, Dorothy has the shoes with the way to get home the whole time. Never-ending stories the same. Even recent films like Harry Potter, or for you young parents out there, Kung Fu Panda and Moana, same kind of thing, right? Where the main character has to go, you know, far away, only to find that the thing they were really looking for was with them the whole time. 
Now today, we're going to be examining a really bold claim from God's Word. And the claim is that fullness of life is experienced through Christ. Not through anything else, not a little bit, but complete fullness of Christ. That's full life. In verse 9, Paul says, In Christ you were brought to fullness. That's a bold claim. Now, I don't know about you, but people I meet, Christians or not Christians, people are wanting a full life, don't you reckon? People are wanting a life full of purpose and meaning, a life that counts for something. And Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, you've got that in your possession. If you're a Christian, some of us, though, can go halfway on the way around the world and spend much of our lives looking for something that what we actually needed and wanted was with us the whole time. Now, if you heard from the reading there, read by Rusty, that we've got a pretty decent chunk of a passage ahead of us. We're not going to go through all of that. That's probably three or four sermons worth, and we'll be here well into the afternoon. No one wants that, I'm sure. But what we're going to do is we're going to drill down and look at what does it really mean to have fullness of life in Christ? That's what we're going to look at. What does it really mean to have fullness of life in Christ? And how we're going to do that is we're going to examine the first couple of verses of the text in front of us. Then we're going to look at two threats, two, two ways that we can be derailed in leading a full life in Christ. And then we're going to try and apply it to our head and our heart and our hands. That's all right? So look at the first couple of verses. Look at two ways that can derail us from living a full life in Christ and then try and apply it to our lives. You with me? You want to come on this journey with me? I see a couple of nods. Well, you three, three nods, you can come with me. I tell you what, this is, this is the most boring thing if I'm doing this on my own. So you, you're with me? We're going to do this? Yes. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. Now, we didn't get that working. That doesn't matter. I'm going to put that down then. And we're just going to focus. All right. Let's begin. Let's zone in on these first couple of verses that we have for us. Here we go. Verses 6 and 7. Let me read it. So then, if maybe bring your Bibles up. I was going to have it on the screen, but bring your Bibles up. If you, if you have them in your hands there, ready? So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So our question for today is, remember, what is the full life? And Paul says the full life is continuing how you began. Now what does Paul say in verse 6? So then, just as you received Christ Jesus... Continue to live your lives in him. Another translation has, so walk in him. I love that. Just as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Now, how do we do that? How do we receive Christ Jesus? How do we come to him? How do we receive the gospel for the first time? We came to him in repentance and faith. We came to Christ, not just as our saviour, but as the Lord of our lives. We came to him and we said, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. We came to him recognizing that God is holy and absolutely unapproachable, that we are completely full of sin, that there is a massive gap between God and us, and we can in absolutely no way bridge that gap. We've recognized that, but we've recognized the incredible gift that Christ is to us. He bridges that gap so we can be with our creator, right? That's, that's how we came to faith. And, and Paul says, just as you came to faith, that's exactly how you continue. And he rams this home with two metaphors. The first one is being rooted. You see that in verse 6 or 7, being rooted in him. Now, what does that mean? I'm not much of a gardener or a landscaper, but I understand 
that a root system of a tree is at least as big as the expanse of its branches. Did you know that? Dave Babington, the landscape, can I get a nod? Okay, good. Even if it's not true, just help me out and nod. Okay, good. <laughs> Apparently that's true. Now, why is that? It's because the root system goes down deep into the ground to search for the nourishment from the soil. That's how it can grow big and strong. And it's the same with us. If we want to grow in our faith, if we want to continue in the way that we receive Christ, how are we going to do that? Let's put our roots down to the deep and rich soil of Jesus. That's how we grow. Now, the next metaphor is very similar, being built up. That kind of idea of you can't build a great and tall building without a very strong foundation. Now, again, I'm not in construction. I've got no idea what I'm talking about. But that's what, I, that's what Bruce the engineer tells me. Okay? If you have a great and deep foundation, that's how you grow strong. God's desire for us is to grow in our Christian faith. And how do we do that? We build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus. That's how we grow tall to be serving others. And that's how we secure ourselves against the oncoming storms. Now, what's the next thing he talks about there? He says, strengthened in your faith, doesn't he? And that word strengthen kind of has that idea of being established, confirming. We actually play an active role in all of this, right? Not passive, active. We play an active role in confirming and establishing. Make it the purpose of your life to make this the pattern of your life. See that? And finally, Paul says there at the end of verse 7, and this should result in overflowing with thankfulness. So Paul's painting this beautiful picture of the beautiful life, and the result of it, the fruit of it is a beautiful life. Sorry, is overflowing with thankfulness. Now, isn't that just a test of our spiritual state? I mean, are our lives producing thankfulness? Are they overflowing with thankfulness? Now, Paul's painted this beautiful picture of of the beautiful life, right? What does it mean to have fullness of life in Christ? What does it mean to have fullness of life? So then, just as you received him, continue in him, be rooted, be built up in him, strengthen your faith, and that will overflow with thankfulness. Now, Paul highlights a couple of things that can derail us from doing this very thing. Two threats, if you will. I've kind of called them. The first one I like to call is Jesus and. Now, what does that mean? Let me explain. We know Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. He didn't know them very well. He'd heard of them from a friend of his, Epaphras, who was in jail with him at the time. But he'd heard they were doing great. But they were young in their faith. And he wrote them to encourage them that Christ is enough, right? We know that we've been in this book for a while, that Christ is enough. And we don't exactly know what was going on in the town of Colossae, but what we do know is they're experiencing a bit of argy-bargy, right? a bit of persecution, a bit of, of influencing from other things. Here's what we think was going on. They were saying, Jesus is, sounds great, but you're crazy to think you can only rely on him to be spiritually fulfilled. Just do yourself a favor and worship other, other heavenly beings. Don't, don't be silly enough to exclusively focus on Jesus in the heavenly realm. Add something else, maybe some sort of philosophy, maybe some... And we can see that in verse 8. Have a look at verse 8 there. What does it say? It says, see t- here we go. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. And what's Paul saying? He's not against philosophy. All that means is the love of wisdom. You listen to how Paul preaches and teaches in the New Testament... He, he loves philosophy. But what he's against is this sort of merging of 
the truth of Jesus and other things, right? The merging of the truth about who Jesus is, but then sort of uniting that with pagan philosophy or something like that. Now, what has that got to do with us? Great question. What's the hollow and deceptive philosophy that might be coming against us? Now, I was thinking about this week, and you, you feel free to come back to me. Maybe don't heckle me now, but tell me afterwards. Um, I've been thinking about what is this hollow and deceptive philosophy? Maybe it's the um, growing, rising voice of secular atheism. Could it be that? You know, there's a small minority in our community, but quite vocal uh, in our media, that, that would say that Christianity is for people who believe in fairy tales, right? That, that they would just slam the claims of the Christian faith out of hand. Now, if that's you, if that's coming against you and that's causing you to lose your hope in Christ, then I think what we need this morning, you you need to be encouraged, you need to pray that God would confirm the truth about who Jesus is and the truth about his claims. So if that's you, you need to be encouraged in that way. But again, I'm not sure if I'm right on this, but I feel like that's not necessarily what could be coming against us as a community completely. That, sure. But I think what's a problem for us, what could derail us, what's Paul saying the full life is? So then just as you received him, continue to walk in him. How can we not do that? What's going to a threat coming against us to do that is merging a bit of Jesus and a bit of the world. Now, what do I mean by that? I think for many of us, I don't think we'd articulate it like this, and I'm putting myself in this category here. We wouldn't necessarily say this, but would our lives say this for us? that we love Jesus, he's our ticket into heaven, thank you very much, Jesus, but for my daily satisfaction, for my daily needs to be met, for my desires to be met, to get purpose and meaning, I'm looking at a lot of other places. Jesus is my fire insurance, he's my ticket into heaven, love him, he's great, but for my daily functional needs, I'm going to lots of other things. Can you relate to that? I can. I think some diagnostic questions for us, or even just questions that I need to ask, is do I really trust Christ to satisfy me? Here's a question I ask myself often. Do I really believe that what Jesus has for me is better than what I think is right for me? Does that make sense? Can I really surrender my life to Jesus and trust that what he's got for me is better than what I think I want for myself? Now, what's the result of this sort of Jesus and? I think what, what I had a picture up, up there, but it doesn't really matter. It was, wasn't a very good one. But w- what this kind of produces potentially, if we have this Jesus and, but this daily functional saviors, maybe we're going to, it ends up looking like this mutant type of faith. And I had this picture of Frankenstein up there, right? Now, it's not Frankenstein, it's Frankenstein's monster. Did you know that? I just found out this week. So the monster is, actually his name is Adam, is that right? No one knows. Cool, I could have just fooled you. Anyway, um, but that's what happens. When we take a bit of Jesus and a bit of everything else, we end up getting this mutant faith. And Frankenstein's monster is so ugly. Why? Because he's sewn together with bits of other dead human bodies. It's grotesque. And that's what our faith can look like when we go to Jesus for a little bit, but for our daily needs go so many other places. I think that's a big threat coming against us and I love that in verse 8 you see the language that Paul uses there taken captive isn't that an interesting thought what have we gone to 
looking for fulfilment for, and actually now we're being held captive by it. Right? What are we... It may not be fine-sounding arguments, but are we believing the lie that everything else but Jesus can give us true meaning, purpose, and satisfaction? Here's the thing. We've been fooled into thinking that Jesus is great, but really, for our daily needs, we're going everywhere else. And the thing is, in going after those things, we haven't got more. We got less. Let me read you a C.S. Lewis quote, because he always says it better than me. He says it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer, by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he ends like this, we are far too easily pleased. All right, that's the first thing that might derail us in living a full life in Christ. What's the second thing? Well, for some of us, it may not be the threat to living a full life in Christ may not be the temptation to want other things to fulfill us. And by the way, I want to say these things necessarily aren't bad, but are we making those things ultimate things in the place of Christ, right? So for some of us, though, that might not be a threat. For us... It might be that we've simply just forgotten our first love. And what do I mean by that? Well, let, let me explain. Throughout verses 16 to 23, right in that long section, Paul highlights the dangers of giving in to these people at Colossae, right? Now, what are these people saying? They're saying you need to add different things to your spiritual smorgasbord in order to be satisfied. But what they're also saying is you've got to do things. Don't be I mean, what, what do you mean, have faith in what Christ has done? You've got to do things to confirm, to make sure that you're saved. You've got to do things, right? Let me read verses 22 and 23. Read that with me. Here we go. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humanity and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence, right? Like I said, the Colossians are being urged to do more for their salvation so that they'll feel secure in what they're doing. But the danger of this is we lose focus on how we began. Isn't it case in point, the Pharisees in the New Testament, right? I mean, they are so obsessed with the what, with fulfilling the letter of the law. I was just reading Luke 6 this week. Jesus comes into a, uh, the synagogue during a Sabbath. They're not supposed to do any work work in the Sabbath. And there's a man, a hurting man there with a shriveled hand. And you know what the Pharisees care more about? The letter of the law. He'd better not do any work, any healing on the Sabbath. They care more about the rules rather than the people God had entrusted them to care for. Are we, are any of us ever in danger of that, maybe? Have you ever wondered why, um, why there's revivals in the church? Have you, heard, you might have heard of that term before. Why there's cycles of renewal in the church? Have you ever thought, if Jesus, I've thought this, if, if Jesus is really on the throne, right, why isn't the church always just growing and flourishing? Why does it sometimes, why is there an ebb and flow? In the history of the church. Here's the reason. Pretty simple, right? What does Paul say? So then, 
just as you receive Christ, continue to walk in him, live in him, it's because we don't do that. We cut off how we begin from how we keep going. It's because we take the beauty of the gospel and we make it all about doing stuff and we make it intolerably boring and dead. That is the accusation against part of the church in this, in this world and it's the truth. We do it far too often. Any of you here ever heard of um, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards? He's a bit of a legend in church history. I had a photo of him there, but it wasn't a very good one, so that's good. Um, a bit of a legend in church history circles. He lived, now I always get mixed up with the hundreds and the centuries. Is anyone with me there? I think it's 18th century, which is 1700s. Yeah, can I get a nod? Thank you. He lived in that time. Let's just say that time back then. He lived in the northeast of America, right? And he was part of what we now call the Great Awakening, an incredible amount of people came to faith. Thousands of people came to Christ during this period. But before then, he was a leader in this movement. But before that, he was a young Anglican minister who inherited his grandfather's congregation, right? And it's, it's interesting reading what he says about them. He's trying to be polite, but it's pretty, pretty cutting. They were, they were hard work. He calls them, they were dry bones. That's what he called them. He said, quoting 2 Timothy 3, they had a form of godliness, denied its power he said to these people that they knew heaps some of them even more than him they they would pass a theology exam right they would pass a religion test but their lives betrayed them and they, he, he said they had sort of this dead orthodoxy this rote orthodoxy and what's what's interesting i think is that they the children of these people saw the hollowness they could see through it can't our kids do that goodness they could see through the hypocrisy and they totally reject religion out of hand because of it. Now, what did it take to revive these people? I think, first of all, we've got to say that what it took was God to have mercy on these people and he poured out his spirit in an incredible way. But after he did that, what did it take to revive these people? It wasn't a new set of laws. It wasn't even a charismatic leader like Jonathan Edwards bringing a new teaching, like, like a cult or something, a new revelation from God. What it took to revive these people was God to pour out his spirit in an incredible way and to give them fresh eyes to see what was with them all along. See that? Fresh eyes to see the gospel. If you read the accounts of this, it's incredible. What happened was they got a, not a new picture, but a revealing of the old picture about who God is. The fact that he is holy and absolutely unattainably awesome. And in comparison, who were they? Sinners filled with sin who had willingly said, amazing, awesome God, I don't want you in my life. I'd prefer to, to, to chase after affluence. I'd prefer to chase after land acquisition, which is what they did. I know a lot about you, but I don't want anything to do with you. They recognized that God was infinitely holy and they were not. There was an enormous chasm between them, but also... They recognized afresh the grace given them in Christ, that they were powerless to do anything about that situation, but God had gifted them his son in Jesus Christ by his grace to change that situation forever. And you read these accounts and people were falling over in their pews, repenting over their past lives and just giving God the glory for who he is, recognizing themselves for who they were and giving thanks for the gift of Christ. Now, I want to ask, I mean, where are we at this morning? Have any of us forgotten our first love? Do any of us need 
fresh eyes to see the beauty of grace again? Is that maybe a way that's derailing us from living the full life in Christ? You see, the solution to a compromised faith, a mutant Frankenstein's monster faith of we like Jesus but we'll take lots of other things, thanks very much, and the solution to a lifeless faith is actually to truly understand with our head and our heart and our hands what it means to have fullness of life in Christ. And if we did that, we'd never look anywhere else and we'd never forget its power. Now, remember a couple of weeks back, Bruce brought a great message in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, I think it is, on the supremacy of Christ. Weren't we just blown away by the awesome picture of who Christ is? 30-second recap. Who is this cosmic Christ? Ready? Jesus is the image of God, firstborn over all creation, maker of all things we can see and can't see, always been in existence since eternity past, holds all things together. He's the head of the church. He rose from the dead. He's making a new people for himself. And his job is to reconcile, to make right all things, including us. Our minds were blown. But I think Paul ups the ante even more in this passage. Why? Because what he says is that supreme Christ, that cosmic Christ, supreme Lord, sufficient Savior, who he is, we are united with him just get our heads what is what we are united with him in this passage that is in front of us this morning he says we are in him eight times is he trying to make a point clear is he trying to get something across he says live in him be rooted in him built up in him fullness in him circumcised with him buried with him raised with him alive with him forgiven in him paul's trying to make a point and in verses 9 through 15 Paul, he does this interesting thing. He, he unites four of these aspects of how we are united with him with the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is kind of weird. We participated with Christ in those things, and that is significant for our daily lives. Let's quickly look at them. The first one is we participated in the death of Christ, meaning that we are actually now justified because of what Christ has done. What does that mean? Imagine yourself in a courtroom, Right, You are guilty, you know it, everybody knows it. The judge is about to lay down the condemnation and Christ says, I got this one, I now declare him innocent. I take the punishment. Now what does that do? It actually means we have the ability to be united with Christ because we could not do that on our own, right? So we, we, we share in the death of Christ. That means that we can now actually be with him. Right? The second thing is we were buried with him. What does that mean? That means our old life is gone. That means our old life of sin is no more. You are now a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is huge. This means that our sinful life is no more. That we are now, it means we we have been sanctified and we're on the road to sanctification. What does that mean? It means we are able to live a life free from sin. Are we going to struggle with sin from now on? Absolutely. Will we be able to be mastered by sin? Absolutely not. Why? Because we have a new master now. What else? Okay, so we, we died with Christ, we were buried with him, we're now raised with him. What does that mean? It means we have the indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit within us, daily, daily, speaking to us of the work Christ has done, daily applying that work to us. And this is kind of crazy. The fourth thing Paul talks about in this section is, believe it or not, we share in the victory Christ had over the spiritual forces of evil in this world. 
Whoa. I mean, that is, we are united with the supreme Christ in this way. If we truly understood this, the wonder of what this means, of being united with this supreme Jesus, how could we ever focus on anything else satisfying at the longings of our heart? Or how could we ever focus on the do's and don'ts? How could we forget the why? Remember our friend Walter Mitty in the beginning? Remember what he did? Went halfway around the world to find something that was in his possession the whole time. How many of us do the same? How many of us spend so much of our lives looking for something that Paul says is with us the whole time? In Christ, you've been brought to fullness. Do we believe that? Let's just get practical for a second. We've had a bit of a theology lesson, right? We haven't we? Justified, sanctified, indwelling spirit, victory over you know, spiritual forces of evil in this world. That sounds great and that's, that's good. But what does it really mean? What does it mean daily? Well, let's, go, let's rewind a bit and look back to the metaphors Paul used about being rooted and built up in him. Let's, let's have a look at what it would mean to build every part of our life on the foundation of Jesus. Okay? Now, what is fullness of life in Christ? So then, just as you received him, continue to live your life in him. Paul's saying that's, the, that's fullness of life. That's fullness of life in Christ. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's imagine for a second that Christ is the foundation stone of our lives. And let's just think about every part of our lives, every building block being shaped upon the foundation stone of Jesus. Does that make sense? And building our life on that. Let me give a a personal, clear example. What about something like marriage? You know, um, many of us are married here. Not all of us are. But it gives us a really good illustration for this. My wife and I, we've been married 13 years. Okay, how do we take, how do I take my marriage, how do we take our marriage and put that building block, how do I shape that onto the foundation of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? Well, let me give an example using marriage. When my wife and I, um, when, we, when we fight, I mean, we've never had a fight. I had to ask someone what it's like to have a fight in marriage. So, but when we, uh, that's a joke, by the way. Um, Neville Naden was here a few weeks ago and he was talking about a similar thing and he said, my wife and I, we, we don't have arguments, we just have intense moments of fellowship. And I uh, <laughs> thought, that's good, I'm going to use that, that's good. So when my wife and I have intense moments of fellowship and um, when we both get over it, when we both um, reconcile, we say we forgive each other, here's my temptation. My temptation, yeah, it's, it's cool, I forgive you. I mean, my wife doesn't do much wrong, but let's just say for argument's sake. Um, let's say, okay, I forgive you. You know what my temptation is? I'll hold on to that. I'll hold on to it. I'll say I forgive, but what I really do is hold on to it. I put it in the chamber and I use that for ammunition in the next fight. Right? And we laugh, but I know you do it. <laughs> is, that, is that what you do? That's what I do. That's the temptation. Okay, so how do I take that situation? How do I take my marriage and shape that on the foundation stone of Jesus. Well, I look back. I don't look for some new teaching. I look back to the gospel. What does the gospel say? When I came to Jesus Christ and repented, and when I come back to him continually for repentance, what does he do? Does he throw up in my face all the things that I've done wrong? Does he say, well, this time maybe I'll forgive, but I tell you what, 
I'm still trying to figure from last time. What does he say? He has separated our sin as far from us as the east is from the west. And that's pretty significant because those two things can never meet. What does 1 Corinthians 13 say? Love keeps no record of wrongs. That is our saviour. That's who he is. How do we model our lives, the building blocks of our lives, our relationships on Jesus? That's how we do it. We go back to first things. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus, so now walk in him, so now live in him. I mean, marriage has so many opportunities for illustrations. Does it every single day? I've got the ability to apply the law of grace or the law of law, don't I? Every day, I've got the choice to be served or to serve. Now, when I'm given that choice, what do I do? I go back and I look at Christ. And what did he do? He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You see? You see what it means to build our lives on how we started? Let me give you another example. I've been talking to a few friends of mine this week. What about this issue of, of body image? Right Now, I, I know it affects far more women than it does men. It does affect some blokes, but, and I feel like a bit of a phony t- standing up here talking about it, something that affects so many more women. But I've talked to some, friends of, some women friends of mine this week about this. That's a big issue. Where does a lot of our pain come from with this issue of body image? It's because we are not defining ourselves on who Christ sees us to be. We are defining ourselves on other people's expectations, aren't we? And our own expectations. We look in the mirror and we we define ourselves by what we see or what we'd like to see. And we put all of our hope and our, our joy and our... We want that affirmation from other people of what they say we look like. But you know what that produces? Guilt, shame condemnation you know what the gospel says to that situation there is no condemnation for those who are in christ do you know that you take that issue of body image which is destroying so many of us in our community and you put that on the foundation stone of jesus what does he say about you he says you have infinite worth he says you are beautiful just the way you are he sees you as a son or a daughter of the living god we get our expectation our affirmation from that place We don't need it from anywhere else. You see where we're going with this? So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus, continue to live your lives in him. I could go on all all morning with different examples, but what I want to do right now is I just want to stop. I want to stop and I want to ask, are you experiencing fullness of life in Christ? Are you experiencing the full life, fullness of life in Christ? Are you like me, so tempted to do the Jesus end. I like Jesus, but I'm going to so many other things for my functional satisfaction. Is that you? Or maybe have you just forgotten the goodness of God? What I want to do now is I want to pray. And we're going to have some people down the front during the next song and after the song to pray with you i'm going to be down there receiving from some prayer because i need help in this situation i tell you what if i if i'm just brutally honest with you we're planting a church next year and i've been experiencing some anxiety recently do you know why it's because i'm tempted to think that it's all about me that it's got to happen because i've got to make it happen and i'm trying to prove myself through that experience and it's brutal 
But you know what? I don't have to prove myself because my heavenly father accepts me for who I am because of who Christ is. And nothing I can do can change that. I want to minister from that place. So if, like me, you need help with this, I invite you to come down and get some prayer. Why not? I'm going to pray right now. Then we're going to sing. I invite you to come down and get some prayer from the wonderful people in our prayer team. I'm going to be down there too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be in Christ. Not a hard taskmaster, but a wonderful heavenly Father that accepts us and loves us. And as you say in the Minor Prophets, you delight in us and you sing over us as your children. Many of us have forgotten this. And we go to so many other things for our fulfillment. Lord, forgive us for this. We want to experience the full life in Christ. Help us to do that. Lord, there are some people here maybe who have forgotten our first love or maybe have never even known it, have never even known the sweetness of forgiveness the beauty of grace. And so, God, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit now, apply this truth to our head and our heart and our hands. We ask that you would change us. And Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would move in us, that we wouldn't leave here unchanged. If there's work to do, if there's business to do with you, may we do it. We love you and we thank you for the good news of the gospel in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing. Oh, praise the name.